Welcome back. My name is Robert Fleming, and I am here with my partner and collaborator, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, talking about elder law issues. Elizabeth, I thought maybe today we could talk about powers of attorney, particularly something much on the minds of a lot of our clients, as well as uh, as on our minds. And I think, Robert, when we talk about powers of attorney, oftentimes people's eyes glaze over a little bit. They are so excited to talk to us about all of their plans with their will or their trust that they actually forget essential documents that everybody needs are their powers of attorney. And when we talk about powers of attorney, today you and I are talking about both a healthcare power of attorney and a durable financial power of attorney. And so I always try and get our clients focused a little bit on the fact that there are two different types of powers of attorney and they're equally both important. One of the things that, that we've been thinking about a lot lately, I know because you and I have talked about it, is that people don't really think through who, who could be the alternate agent on their powers of attorney. So you've picked out which of your children or what neighbor or what healthcare a professional should be the agent on your financial or healthcare power of attorney. Why is it important to have a backup for them? It's important to have a backup for that person or, or co-agents, if you've named co-agents in the first spot, because you never know what's going to happen, Robert. You don't know what's going to be going on in your agent's life at the moment in time where you may need help. That person may not have the time or the availability to step in as your healthcare agent or start to help with paying bills as your agent under your durable financial power of attorney. So one of the reasons is because we don't have a crystal ball about your situation, we actually don't have a crystal ball about what's going to be your agent's course of events in that person or people's lifetime. So I encourage people to have some backups, not because we don't want your agent to serve, but because I think it's a smart thing to do. And when we work with agents who have stepped in uh, pursuant to the terms of one of these kinds of documents, sometimes it helps that person to know that if they're not able to help, somebody else is named. One of the things that I think a lot of our clients don't really think through is that they, they can imagine becoming incapacitated and having their agent step up, but they have a hard time thinking about being incapacitated for a period of years perhaps, during which time your agent is aging and going through their own crises and, and on their own family dynamics. So it's really a good idea to have a backup for the long term as well as the short term. But Robert, what happens if I don't have a backup to my primary agent? Are there ways to allow my agent to name his or her successor? There's not really a good mechanism under Arizona law to allow the, the agent to pick a new person. In fact, we see that a lot, as you know. Clients call up and say, I am named as agent on my mother's power of attorney. I, I think I can't keep doing this. I would like to name my wife or my husband as the new agent. I'm sorry, you can't do that. That's not one of the things that an agent has the power to do. All the more important when you're signing your initial power of attorney to have a suitable backup as well. Could I create a provision in my power of attorney that explicitly says my agent has the authority to nominate somebody? I, you could certainly craft it. I just don't think that it's going to be uh, familiar enough and acceptable enough to the banks and the, and the doctor's offices that they're going to be completely comfortable with it. Though I will say that things have changed a lot in recent years 
and uh, and and documents are much more acceptable than they were when I first started practicing back right after the Declaration of Independence was signed. <laughs> well, Robert, can I ask, what about that person who's got a handful of people that, that they might have in mind, but they're having a hard time deciding who to put in that backup position? One of the things that you might consider doing is naming multiple agents, uh, and, uh, and that helps address the question of succession. But, um, but there's a real problem if you only have one person in mind who could act for you and there isn't any backup. That's a, that's a real limiting factor. Some people name an, an organization, and sometimes that's us. Sometimes Fleming and Curdy acts as the agent or the successor agent or alternate agent on powers of attorney. But professional organizations are usually ill-equipped to do the day-to-day work of, of acting as agent unless there really is no family member or, or close friend to act. And Robert, in the event that Fleming and Curdy is named as a healthcare agent or an agent under a durable financial power of attorney, does that mean that our case management team and our finance team are involved in that person's day-to-day? Oh, absolutely. That's exactly how we handle cases where we act as agent. Of course, we're much more commonly acting as successor trustee or conservator under a court order or personal representative in a probate proceeding. We do act as agent, though. It's, it's just that most people have somebody in their, in their family who's a suitable choice to make health care decisions particularly. Well, I think this is something that everybody listening today and, and thinking through their own documents, just contemplate. Are you comfortable with the person you've named and nominated as an agent in your documents? If so, that's great. Do you have somebody on hand as an alternate? And if the answer is no, those are perfectly appropriate things to give us a call about because sometimes we work with people, Robert, who may have updated their documents recently in the last year or two, but their agent circumstances have changed. And if that's the case, it is a good reason to give us a call and talk about things a bit because the worst possible scenario is is that you're well aware already your agent's not going to be able to serve and you haven't updated your documents. You don't want to wait until you need them to update them. So if I already have selected an agent and I have an alternate agent, is that enough? Or do I need a second alternate agent? Or do I need to name five people? Well, Robert, that's a good question. And I think my answer is it depends. It depends on your circumstances, your needs. It depends on the agent or agents that you've nominated and you're thinking about that process. Certainly, when we work with people who decide to nominate an agent or agents who are younger people, who may be just coming of age, 18, 19, 20, 25, those are occasions where I often encourage them to nominate a number of different alternate agents because when we work with people who are young, their lives are changing quickly. People are off at school or doing other things. The same thing applies when we start to look at agents who may be on in years in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. So in either case, it really depends on your circumstances and who you're naming. So one last question in this area that maybe we could address. You made a reference to it, Elizabeth, as we started through the process, and that is the idea of having multiple agents who have equal authority. So we've talked about having a single agent and an alternate agent and maybe a second alternate agent. 
why not just name all three kids as co-agents and give them equal authority, and that way there probably will be at least one of them able to act at any given time. Wow, Robert, do we have another hour or two to talk about this? This is one of the most important questions to talk to folks about when somebody is considering whether or not to nominate more than one agent to serve in the role. And what I mean by that is nominating two people as co-agents. It really depends on the circumstances. I only encourage this in cases where the agents know each other, where they get along, where they're high-functioning people. Uh, personally, I'm somebody who thinks it's a lot easier to manage money when there's one person in charge of it at a time. So I'm very reluctant to recommend that co-agents ever be nominated under a durable financial power of attorney. On the healthcare side, I normally encourage people to limit the number of agents that they nominate by two people. So this is important to talk about. Every case is a little bit different, but I'll tell you the one answer that applies every time. Do not nominate somebody as an agent or co-agent because you want to be nice and you don't want to hurt their feelings. That is not a reason to nominate somebody as a co-agent. The reality is, is that anybody you're nominating in your documents to serve in a fiduciary capacity needs to be ready on any given day at any time to step in. And if you're nominating somebody just because you don't want to have their feelings hurt, you want them to see their name in the document, we can talk to you about creative ways to do that. But naming them as a fiduciary is not one that I recommend. Well, on that note, let's save some of the rest of this conversation for another day. We could have another session, for instance, on what to do when you you name a spouse as agent and your spouse becomes incapacitated uh, or you're, you're beginning to question their capacity. Um, we're going to suggest that people look at their old documents to see what they've done. They may misremember what they did seven, eight, ten years ago. But for now, let's stop there and, uh, and encourage people to join us again next time. I'm Robert Fleming talking with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. If you had fewer names, I could say them without <laughs> having to stumble over them. Uh, and, uh, and you're listening to Elder Law Issues. We hope you'll join us again next time.